morning, church family, and happy Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. That call and response feels so different this morning, just like much of life is now. I know that for most of us, our world is kind of flipped upside down. I mean, it doesn't feel that much like Easter, does it? I mean, I don't see all the cute kids running around all the awesome pastel colors. I don't see all the families dressed up and taking pictures. No massive Easter egg hunt, no big party that has been a part of Waypoint's tradition since we've begun. But our reason for joy is the same. Our reason for hope. Our reason to praise Jesus is alive. Death could not contain him. He is risen indeed. Our circumstances in the world may change, but this eternal truth remains true. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. 1 Peter 3 says this, 1 Peter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. My people, what a happy day. What a joyous day. Christ is risen. Let us pray. Exalted and resurrected Jesus, we join the Apostle Peter's bold declaration of living hope and great joy. For you have risen from the dead, and this good news changes everything. Because of your resurrection, we're neither afraid to die or to live. We're not restless wanderers on the earth. We're hopeful children of God. We're no longer enslaved to our sins. We're now wrapped in your righteousness. Because of your resurrection, everything sad will come untrue, and all things broken will be made new. How we long for that day. Because of your resurrection, you are already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. All powers and principalities now stand defeated, and one day they will be fully eradicated. Jesus, your death is the death of death, and your resurrection is the resurrection of all things. You died for our sins and have been raised in authority. We are forgiven. We are beloved. We are yours. In light of this living hope and compelling love, this measureless grace and eternal inheritance, in light of the resurrection, may we live resurrected lives. In your eternal and beautiful name, amen. Amen. Let's sing together.
especially since I've been sharing stories with people who come from faith traditions where they might honor Jesus as a prophet, but do not believe that he was resurrected from the dead. And I was really touched by what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he told the church at Corinth that if the resurrection didn't happen, he said, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Um, he says, your faith is futile. And also you're still in your sins. And I know for me, sometimes I just equate that I am redeemed and my sins are forgiven because Christ died for them, which is true. But the resurrection is the hinge point of our faith. The resurrection didn't happen, then, then none of it's real. And I was really just thinking about that, but also thinking about in Luke, we see that Mary Magdalene and Joanna went and they went and they saw that the tomb was empty and they immediately, they went and told the disciples and thinking about, is that my first reaction in living in light of the resurrection to go tell people? Um, Jesus gave the Great Commission when he was resurrected from the dead. And do I, do I live like I, like 
someone who is on this side of the resurrection, if that makes sense. Do I live in light of the resurrection? Is the way I interact with people and love people, does that all hinge on the fact I believe in a God who overcame death itself? Um, when I think about stresses or anxieties of this world, God overcame them because he overcame death. He overcame sin. Um, and do I share this with people like it is the most important event in the history of the world? Because it is. Um, if the resurrection happened, this changes everything. The resurrection is everything. And I've just been so convicted by my own um, reticence to, to tell people about the resurrection. Like, is it going to hurt their feelings? Is it going to make them feel uncomfortable? Um, and just thinking about it is the most important thing in the world and just feeling the boldness that Mary and Joanna felt to go and tell people um, because the resurrection, it, it, it does, it changes everything. Hello, my name is Lance Adams. My wife is Sarah and I have three kids, Ella, Evander, and little Leona. Um, during the week of Easter, yeah, I've been thinking about the resurrection and of course resurrection is a rich topic for thought and reflection. Most years I'm excited and I'm pumped. I'm thinking about Jesus standing at the mouth of the tomb in a, you know, in some heroic pose. My favorite song is by Ron Kennelly, Jesus is Alive. My favorite line from the song is, death has lost its victory and the grave has been denied. But this year our joy has been challenged, not gone, but challenged by the global pandemic and the difficulties it's wrought in this world. Um, you know, church is different. It's digitalized. That's not necessarily a bad thing and I'm thankful for it, but it's just not quite the same. Um, where our Easter egg hunts are canceled, our family dinners, our Easter dinners are going to be uh, pared down to a minimum, uh, and things are just different. And of course, there's other people who are facing even more detrimental and difficult things this time in our world. Um, you know, and, and when I think about the resurrection as I read the account in Matthew, it stood out to me that the disciples also faced their own set of crises, a real crisis. You know, they, they risked their entire careers, their relationships, their financial security, and their lives to follow Jesus. And their expectations could not have been further from what they got. They got a dead rabbi. Fast forward past the crucifixion to the resurrection to Matthew 7, 28, 17, and Jesus is finally there. It's the moment. It's that moment in the movie where everything changes. There's a surprise ending, and it's really exciting. And this is what it says, though. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You see, for some, even the risen Christ did not fully meet their expectations. And that really struck me. For many of us, this is where we are. We worship him, but we have some doubts about him being able to meet our expectations to fix what is broken. The reality is that Jesus may not always meet our expectations, but not due to anything lacking in him. Jesus knows our hearts. He's outside of time. He knows the events of the world. He knows our fears. He knows how our, expe how, how our expectations of April 2020 are not being met. To this, the resurrected Christ says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it sounds like a quick and easy platitude, but he means every word of it. He stood before his 11 disciples who were experienced in a mixture of worship and doubt, still in the fallout of their recent crisis, headed into uncertain waters, and gave them the famous, therefore, go of the Great Commission. It's unclear as to whether our situation will resolve quickly, um, what the aftermath will look like. But in our context, as we stand before the resurrected Christ, with a mixture of worship and doubt, he beckons each of us still to therefore go, to trust him, to worship him, even if we still have our doubts. 
Hear the word of God from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. But very early on Sunday morning, the woman went to the tomb. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. 
You are witnesses of all these things. This is the word of the Lord. Waypoint Church, we're going to dive right into this text. This amazing text where Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was resurrected. In this passage we are diving into today, we have a very interesting situation. The disciples are gathered and they're down, despondent, depressed, in a, in a rough spot. Life as they've known has been flipped upside down. The teacher that they've put their hope in for the past three years of their life has been crucified and dead. That's not what they expected when they marched into Jerusalem with the crowd yelling, Hosanna. Even though Jesus said something to this effect multiple times, they are like us, often very clueless. It's in this setting that Jesus appears in his resurrected body. And what are the first words out of his mouth to his disciples there? Now, first words, especially when you haven't seen somebody or after a traumatic event, are often important words. I mean, if I took my dad's brand new car, took it out for a spin, and got to an accident... I would expect his first words to be very angry and disapproving. If I found out that I got the job that I've been hoping for, the first words out of my mouth would have been very exciting and expressing the emotion that I was feeling at the time. And I wonder what the disciples thought would have been the first words out of Jesus' mouth if he were to appear to them. I mean, they may have been thinking, we scattered, we denied him, we didn't go down with him. I would have expected his reaction to be more like my dad finding out that I wrecked his car. But instead, Jesus' first words to his disciples were this, peace to you. His first words to his disciples were words that were calming, words of acceptance, words of grace and love. The disciples were actually scared and thought, is this a spirit? But Jesus showed that he's very real. He said, touch my hands, touch my feet, see that I'm flesh and bones. Reassuring words that he gave to his disciples. He said he's not an angry spirit. He wasn't a zombie, which I found out through playing a game that Greeks actually thought of were scared of zombies. It's true. That he said the most human thing possible. He said, I'm hungry. I love that. Jesus said, okay, guys, I know you're in a dark place, and I'm not here to come down upon you. I'm here. I'm not angry. Have peace. I'm real. That he connects in an intimately familiar family type way. He says, let's do something so human, so normal, so family together. Let's eat. All this was in order to show that they had no need to be frightened. This was the real Jesus in the flesh. What Jesus wanted to teach his disciples and what he wants to teach us today is that it is his resurrection that gives us peace. What we need today, what, we, what they needed then, is to see that his resurrection, his presence is all that is needed for our peace today. My son Hudson lately has been saying that he's been scared at night. He's like, Daddy, Appa, Appa is what he calls me. He says, Appa, I'm scared. And often he'll say that just because he wants to not go to bed right then or he wants me to play with him. But sometimes when it storms, he's been scared of storms lately, he comes to me and says he's scared. And all he needs to make him not scared is just to be with me. When I lie down next to his bed, just, just knowing that I'm there with him, he can go to bed quickly. He just needs me to find his peace. May we be like Hudson today in a sometimes scary world and a scary time. May we look to Jesus and his resurrection and realize that is what we need for our peace. The resurrection gives us and secures our peace by three things. One, showing us that God fulfills his promises. Two, that Jesus is the Messiah. And three, he conquers sin and death. 
He fulfills his promises. Verse 44 out of Luke says this, or 24 says this. Then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what does the Old Testament say about him? What must be fulfilled? What was the promises made? And if you guys remember last week, this is a story of the lamb that I spoke about last week when I preached on the Passover. This is a story that is the main story of the Bible. That enmity will come from the offspring of Eve, between Eve, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. A savior will come, a rescuer. That a people will be formed and they will be a blessing to the nations. That God will be their God and the people will be his. A sacrificial system that pointed to an ultimate sacrifice. A king who will come, who will rule with justice and wisdom and a restoration of all things. Jesus is the answer to all the longings and the fulfiller of all the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We can have peace because we know God keeps his promises and that the full story of the world is about the lamb who was slain that is worthy of all praise and worship. God is sovereign and he's working out this incredible divine plan to work out and secure our rescue to be an intimate relationship with him. Two, the resurrection shows that he is the Messiah. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. In the end of verse 47, proclaimed in his name shows the authority for which forgiveness comes from. The idea that only the Messiah himself has the power and authority outside of God the Father. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, did you guys know when it says, uh, thus it is written that Christ should suffer, did you know that Christ is actually the Greek word for Messiah? In case you didn't know that. It's not Jesus' last name, in case you were wondering, in case you were confused. It's not, there's no Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ is actually a title, and it literally means Messiah in Greek. His resurrection proved that Jesus is the Messiah that the people have been waiting for, have been longing for. Psalm 16, 8 through 10 says this. I see the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This Messianic Psalm says that the Messiah will not see corruption, or soul wouldn't dwell in death. It, it alluded to the resurrection. Through what we call Messianic prophecies, God provided a sure way to recognize his Messiah when he came. These prophecies are events written in the Bible hundreds and even thousands of years before they would take place in time. Only God himself could reveal such amazing detail in millennia in advance of the historical events. God declared that his Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, and the son of David. God also said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, in poverty, would be preceded by a herald, and would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He'd be seen riding on a donkey, and would be present 483 years after the decree was made to rebuild Jerusalem after Babylonian captivity. He'd be a prophet, a priest, and a king. There's so much more. He would be legally tried and condemned to death, would suffer and die. His hands and feet would be pierced. There's so many prophecies about this coming Messiah. All in all, around 330 prophecies, scholars think, such as these, were fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming. The French mathematician George Heron calculated that the odds of one man fulfilling only 40 of these prophecies are 1 in 10 to the power of 157. 
That is one followed by 157 zeros. There's so many of these prophecies fulfilled by Jesus that he, the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And Messiah literally means anointed one. The Israelite people saw this as the one who will deliver them, sort of a Moses type, the one who would, who, that would come and take them out of slavery, out of bondage. They were looking for a savior that would rise up like a warrior and lead them in rebellion. Maybe conjure up some plagues, maybe split a sea or something. They miss that this deliverer is delivering them from something so much more than oppression and slavery, than delivering them from so much more than just Roman rule. He would deliver them from sin and death. Number three, Jesus' resurrection shows that he conquered sin and death, and forgiveness for his sins is in his name. How are sins forgiven in his name? We spoke last week about Passover for the Israelite people, and this is when the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh and Moses, and Moses comes along and says, let my people go. He does the whole plague thing. The plagues come and to convince Pharaoh, and he doesn't budge. Then the final plague happens. But before it does, the Passover meal occurs. I said last week that at the home of every Israelite family, there was either a, there was a, a dead lamb at the feast at the table. And this was to say that either there was a dead lamb or a dead son. Sins demanded this. The plague demanded this. Justice demanded this. A lamb or a son. A substitution. Jesus Christ, on the night that he and his disciples celebrated Passover, had all the elements of a Passover meal except for the lamb. Jesus was proclaimed that he was going to be the lamb. He would be the perfect lamb that willingly went to the slaughter for our sins. Jesus was put to death in our place. He took the full penalty of sin. His work upon the cross brought together true justice and grace, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus' resurrection showed that his death was enough for all. The fact that he didn't stay dead showed that his sacrifice was once for all, that it was worthy for the salvation of all. He was a perfect one with no sin. He was the ultimate lamb, and his death was sufficient for all. His resurrection takes on our biggest fear, death itself. Tim Keller says this, death is our great enemy more than anything else. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly through all our days. Modern people write and talk endlessly about love, especially romantic love, which eludes many. But no one can avoid death. It has been said that all the wars and plagues have never raised the death toll. It has always been one for each and every person. Yet we seem far less prepared than, it for, than our ancestors. Jesus Christ, knowing that death is our great enemy, took on death as our champion, like David taking on Goliath, like the Carmen song. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He took on our greatest enemies, sin and death. And unlike David, he didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. But in so doing, he defeated death and sin. He took the penalty we deserve for our sins, the punishment of death, and in our place as our substitute. But because he himself was a man of perfect, sinless love for his father and neighbor, death could not hold him, death could not contain him, and because he was God himself, he rose from the dead. 
That's why in verse 14, the writer says, he destroyed the power of death because he died and rose, taking away the bar penalty and guaranteeing the future resurrection of all who are united with him by faith. Jesus Christ has killed death. Do you see what that does? He's the champion in our stead who died instead of fighting, died upon it, but in so doing, he won the battle. He is risen from the grave. He is a champion over death, so death has no sting. I love that phrasing that Paul uses. Death has no sting, no bite, no ability to attack us or to wound us or to hurt us because death has been conquered by Jesus, our champion. It doesn't hurt us anymore. It has no power over us anymore because our future is secure. Because he is resurrected, we will be resurrected. Death, where is your sting? So what should this peace that comes from knowing the resurrection compel us to do? See, my statement was that it's a resurrection of Jesus that gives us peace. And we feel it, we see it because he fulfills his promises. Because he is the promised Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one. And because he conquered sin and death, we can say, peace we have. Peace is ours. No more do we need to fear. But then what then should this peace compel us to do? What then should this resurrecting peace that is ours compel us to do? For starters, I want us to understand that what it shouldn't compel us to do. It shouldn't say, well, okay, we're going to leave this earth one day with a resurrected body. So who cares about this place anyway? This place is going to hell in a handbasket. Let's get out of here. This is, we're on, a, we're on a, a sinking ship and let's just get on a lifeboat and forget about the rest of the ship. It should not compel us to say that. It should not compel us to say, peace, I'm out of here. Christian salvation is not us leaving this awful world and going to heaven. Christian salvation is heaven coming down into this world and renewing it. To get rid of all hunger, all sickness, all disease, all death, all injustice. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow? What would you do today? He said something very odd, something weird, something that I would not say, but he said, I'd plant a tree. What? Why would he say, I'd plant a tree? And this is key, people. I want you to get this. This is good theology. He says, I'd plant a tree. And by saying that, he's saying, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree. He's saying, he's understanding that Jesus coming back isn't the end of creation. It's the renewing of it. He's coming to make all wrongs right. Luther is saying, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of this renewing work. And he's going to say, he's saying, imagine how this tree is going to sing and look when Jesus comes back. So what do we do? We plant. We heal. We help. We fix. Because God's out there doing it himself. We can work to repair the material world with enormous hope. This is awesome. This is unique. This is the theology that we have. Is that God is about advancing his kingdom on earth, renewing creation, making what is wrong right. So we are a part of that work now. Tim Keller says this, there is a worldview that says this world is not important. All that matters is heaven and the spiritual. See, that'll give you some freedom from the material world but not freedom for it, not engagement. You have the secular mindset then that says, this material world is all there is, we better fix it. See, that gives you freedom for the material world to engage in it, but not from it. Because if anything goes wrong in your life, your life is over. The resurrection, though, gives you freedom for and from. 
It gives you peace. You can handle anything. You're not going to miss out on anything, but you're engaged. You're involved. I send you now that you've witnessed the resurrection to the world to live utterly different lives. This peace from the resurrection compels us. It moves us to both be engaged in the world, but also free from the world. Does that make sense? We're both free to say, yes, I'm engaged, I'm free, because this is the kingdom work, this is the resurrecting work, this is renewing work, this is recreating work that Jesus did by his death and resurrection. So we're, we're free to engage in it, to be a part of it, to be a part of the work that's accomplishing it. But we're also free from it, because when things go bad, we know we have a more secure future and hope, because Jesus is resurrected. So in our current day, we're free to engage in this work of healing our neighborhoods, renewing creation, fighting for justice. But we're also free when it doesn't happen. When we see hurts and we see pains that devastate us. Because we know God will finish the work. It also compels us to proclaim his name among the nations. Verse 47, 48, 49 says, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission that we so often read in Matthew 28. Notice that Luke says there are three things that he has taught them, that Jesus has taught them from Scripture, that Christ should suffer, that Christ should be raised, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all the nations in Christ Jesus. Which of those three things had already happened? Christ has suffered, Christ has risen, But what remains to be done? The proclamation of forgiveness of sins, of repentance in the name of Jesus to the nations. So what does he say to his disciples? You are my witnesses. Jesus is giving a mandate for missions here in this passage. He's saying, I've been teaching you all along. I'm going to die. I'll be raised from the dead. And you will go to the nations proclaiming forgiveness of our sins, proclaiming his death and his uh, resurrection for the repentance of sins. And now you are going to be my witnesses. That's what he's calling us to do as witnesses. People who've seen, people who've tasted, people who've been a part of the work of God. This is a very foundation of missions. My people, are you someone who has seen the resurrected Jesus? Are you a witness? Has, does the resurrection grant you peace? Comfort, knowing that he is a God who keeps his promises, knowing that he is the promised Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king that the world has longed for, knowing that he has the authority to forgive sins and he's conquered sin and death. Is that peace yours? And if it's so, if it is yours, then you are called to engage in the world and also be free from it and to proclaim his name to the nations. It's his resurrecting power that compels and moves us, that empowers us. At the end of this chapter, it says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. And this is a unique phrase Luke says here, the promise of my Father. And what is the promise of the Father? That phrase occurs again, actually, in Acts chapter 1. It's no surprise because Acts is also written by Luke. So it makes sense. And in Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus say that God's going to do? That he's going to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one promised to you. And it's not just a New Testament idea. It's the Old Testament idea that Christ Jesus is the blessing of Abraham might come. This is in Galatians 3. It says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul is explaining the cross, and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, so that in Galatians 3, 14, it says this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham, the promise of the father to Abraham is what? It's the Holy Spirit. The substance of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 is this blessed union, blessed spirit that comes from the union with Christ. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, it says, I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see this beautiful combination of God, as a God who keeps his promises, but he also then keeps his promises by using his people. Jesus is extending the promise. He is the fulfillment of this promise, but he also extends fulfillment of that promise to his disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. My people, as people who are living resurrected lives, you are called and compelled to be witnesses to his forgiveness to the ends of the earth. In this passage, as we've been looking into, we have the disciples startled, frightened, just having gone through a Bible study with them, and Jesus says to them, you're going to go be my witnesses to go to all nations and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what they did. Isn't it incredible to see in the next book that Luke wrote in the book of Acts, you see the incredible continuation that these uh, farmers and uh, tax collectors and fishermen and just normal people all of a sudden went forth after this encounter, after meeting and seeing and beholding the resurrected Jesus. What did they do? They did exactly what he compelled them to do. They went and was witnesses and in this powerful process started a movement that's changed the face of the earth. They engaged in the world around them. They were witnesses to the forgiveness offered by Jesus. And they were never the same. And the world was never the same again. My people who have beheld the glory of the risen Jesus. My people who have seen the beauty of a living Savior. My people who are living resurrected lives by the work of Jesus Christ. Will you go be compelled to engage in the world while still being free from it, to share the good news of forgiveness of sins. That's a blessing to all nations. We are his witnesses. We should proclaim his name to all the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit, living in peace that his resurrection gives us, only by the work of Jesus and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this tumultuous and unprecedented time for us, kind of a time that we feel like our world has been flipped upside down, we thank you for this day, this reminder of the resurrection power of Jesus that brings us peace. God, we thank you that our identity, God, we thank you that our security is not wrapped up and found in the happenstance and things that are going on in the world around us.
God, that we can be a part of this world, engaged in this world, caring for this world, but not tied down, not enslaved, and not brought down by the things that are happening in it. By your resurrecting power, by your resurrection, we are secure in the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. God, that your resurrecting power will resurrect us. That we no longer fear the great enemies of death and sin. You are champion, fought against them, you've conquered, and you won. So God, may we live in that peace. May we dwell in that peace as we behold the resurrected Jesus. And God, as we do so, will you compel us, will you move us to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. May we be that blessing to the ends of the earth. God, may we proclaim the good news of the gospel. God, that the Bible is a story of the Lamb. The lamb that was slain, the lamb that lives, the lamb that conquers, and the lamb who rules. Thank you, Jesus, for being the lamb who is resurrected. May we behold you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.